Hello, and welcome to episode 171 of the Waters Wavelength Podcast. I am Anthony Malikian, editor of Waters Technology, and today I'm happy to be joined by Rich Newman, the head of FactSet's Content and Technology Solutions Group. Rich, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me here, Tony. So today we're going to have a discussion. It's going to be a data discussion, obviously, you know, uh, with where you guys are coming from. We're going to look a little bit about this idea around open data. We're going to talk about alternative data. We're going to get into ESG. We're going to get into a couple different aspects of data before we get into that, though. For people know fact set, obviously, but for what you do and uh, for the kind of this open fact set uh, end of it, why don't you talk a little bit about that piece of it? Sure. Thanks for the opportunity to be here. So the content and technology solutions business is one of FactSet's four business units. As many of you probably know, FactSet's typically known as a workstation company. We've also done a tremendous job in the portfolio analytics space and the risk space and others. What some people haven't known is that we've grown a very big business in what we used to call off-platform, which was basically the business I run to monetize our content and third-party content we integrate. Basically, what we always saw is we were able to do an excellent job with symbology, corporate actions, linking disparate data sources together, and realized there was a great opportunity in the market to actually distribute that through APIs and data feeds to both quants, but also to middle office and back office solutions. And that's really what started the CTS business about seven or eight years ago. That's the business I run, and it's right now you know, the fastest growing business at FactSet and one that's become very material to our success. Sure. The reason why I wanted to have you on, Rich, is that... I've always enjoyed talking about data issues. You know, you can never tell. You talk with somebody about data, it can go one of two ways, you know, really interesting or really just (laughs) sleep-inducing. But I've always enjoyed our conversations that we've had. And so I thought it would be interesting as we kind of head into the kind of the last quarter of 2019 on into 2020, where the industry is heading and this idea around, let's start with open data, right? Open data is this idea that, I guess, democratization of data, but that more and more data sets are available and open. And now, as a result, and thanks to public cloud providers, uh, computing power, things like that, the ability to take in, store, analyze this data, it's becoming ever more important. Where do you see open data? What are kind of the trends and the needs of your customers, of the industry at large, around this idea of, all right, there's all these new data sets. How do I take advantage of it? Great questions, Tony. And Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, <laughs> if I could do anything in this call, if I can make data cool and data feeds and APIs the coolest part yeah. of the business, I'm happy. That's my goal, okay? We'll see, yeah. see, see if we can do that. I, too, have enjoyed our conversations over the past uh, few years. Appreciate it. Of course um, you yeah, <laughs> We've become good friends. Yeah. Um, when I think about um, data, there is just huge influx of data, new data. And you know, historically in the financial community, data was around security pricing, around fundamentals, around data you can capture through SEC filings, through traditional sources. That was data. What's happened over the last few and, years. And sorry. Sure. And that would be, for, for those that maybe are, when we're going to talk about alternative data, so everything else is traditional data, what yep. you just mentioned. Right. All of a sudden now you have this huge bucket. That, that's what falls into alternative data, yes? Alternative data is what's not captured that yeah. way. It's data that may not be that unusual. I mean, yeah. credit card information, sure. Twitter feed data, Facebook uh, data, foot traffic information, yeah. weather data. It's just data that's real. It's just not typically what investment firms were using to make decisions. So when I think of data, I'm pretty focused on the investment community and the investment process, whether it's to generate alpha or to minimize risk. That's where I see data used. 
The challenge for firms as they move into larger and, and bigger amounts of data is what, how to make sense of it, how to evaluate it. There's so much, and it's complicated. It doesn't necessarily link. Some things that people may consider simple, like how to link symbology across data sets. One data set may have Google as G. Another data set has as a G-O-O-G. Mm. How, do you maintain, how do you maintain time series on that information? How do you deal with stock splits and corporate actions? That's where the complexity comes. So the challenge for a lot of firms is they want to do data science, a lot of terms you've been hearing, and they can't even get started because they're spending so much time. The word cleaning is overused, but it's really just integrating data sets. Yeah. That's the opportunity. That's where we see the biggest pain points at our clients and where we see the biggest opportunity. Because if you can give users clean data, data that's linked together, they can do their job, which is really using this information to generate ideas, to create alpha, to minimize risk for their organizations and their clients. So, and then to, to drill in a little more to the open data side, open source mm -hmm. usage, whether yep. it's tools, platforms, stuff like that, or data sets themselves. Right. It's growing, and it, the capital markets were queasy of it, to say the least, sure. you know, just a few years ago. But now you're starting to see it more and more, especially as they want to kind of use its data sets and combine certain forms of AI, whether it's machine learning, deep right. learning, whatever have you. Can you talk a little bit more about that usage of these open data sets that exist out there through open source tools mm -hmm. and why that's becoming more prevalent. Sure, and where the market shifted is, if you look back, you know, I've been in this space for a long time, firms used to use proprietary technologies, you know, GUI-based interfaces, proprietary solutions from firms like Faxit and our competitors in this marketplace. Mm -hmm. What's changed is there's a whole new generation of users out there who are familiar with open tools like R, like Python, or tools that are still commercially very you know, open, like MATLAB and things like that, to build their solutions. The other advent has been the cloud. There's much more, there's unlimited processing now that uh, people can use. So there's more opportunity to do more complex analyses, the ability to test. What I think has probably been, I'm not gonna say overstated, but where we're still, I believe, in the early stages is, it is still a testing phase. Yeah. Firms are still to do most of their analysis, going by traditional means, and putting their toe in the water to test alternative data, to come up with new ways to look for information. So what we've seen is hedge funds, you know, the ones who are leading the way, they're doing a lot. They're using the open tools and the yeah. open platforms trying to come up with ideas. The more traditional banks, investment management firms, are still at the point of testing this information, looking for trends, looking for ideas. And again, what I've seen is that one of the biggest struggles for the big firms is how do we even get started? You know, you mentioned, and we'll talk a little bit about other data types like ESG and others. Mm -hmm. There could be hundreds of different ESG providers. Yeah. How do they select what's going to provide the greatest value? And if they're taking six months to a year just to load the data, to test it, to link it together, that's a big challenge. Yeah. So back to open tools. I mean, I've been hearing about AI for 30 years. I've been hearing, you know, it's just been something we've always talked about. It's not replacing the human. It's a tool. It's, you know, a way to come up with ways to look for signals. But ultimately... There's no panacea. Yeah. And I think that uh, tends to happen, and this is sometimes where the buzz goes a little too far, is there's a feeling that there's this magical solution out there. What makes the markets work is people have different ideas, and that's not changing. Yeah. Well, I think that that's the interesting thing, right, is that whenever you talk about AI will replace certain roles and stuff like that, especially on lower end, and you would hope that we can retrain that. God, there's certainly macro discussion that we could talk about. But next podcast. Yeah, next podcast, yeah, okay. certainly. I'm here. But for for our, um, for what we're covering here and what we're talking about, this is data that can now help 
uh, whether it's portfolio managers, risk managers, you know, compliance uh, professionals, to do their job better. Yes. And AI can certainly help with that. But as you bring up, the problem that we're facing in the alternative data space is that it's so vast, so varied, mm-hmm. even ESG. And let, we'll wait for a second to get into the ESG discussion, but that is E, S, and G. Each one of those can be broken up into sure. subsets that you can then crack down into even more. What are the biggest complaints right now when we talk about alternative data? It's Because right now it's like, oh, this is all great, but how do you figure out what's useful for you versus what's... Oh, I heard that this hedge fund's using you know this you know great new data set. I should use it too. And then they're like, oh, we don't nearly have the data scientists and stuff like that that can actually extract value from this. The key is getting to evaluation quicker. So again, what we're leveraging, and I think others will too, is you know there's a lot of this data that we traditionally have been sending in data feeds. Yeah. And when we send a data feed to a client, and we send one or two, and a client picks it, the client may have some work to buy the hardware, get IT involved, and integrate that information. What we see is, again, the goal is how do we get to testing and evaluating more quickly? So what we've done is we put that data all in the cloud in a very standard database like SQL, linked to all the tools like Python and other tools out there, and just give an environment to test. Yeah. So right now, firms and users are just testing this information. So you want to have an opportunity to see 30, 40, 50 ESG providers. So that's where you know I've changed on this journey. And as you know, we talked about, you know, our initiative around alternative data has been going on for about two years now. And initially, I thought we'd be picking winners or losers. And I realized that's not our job. Yeah. It's the job of the clients to do that. So our job is to provide a platform that gives as much access to as many different types. I don't pick the winners or losers. You know, facts it doesn't. Here it is. You test it. And clients, you decide which ones provide value, efficacy to their investment process. And if that's the case, they can then bring it in-house and integrate it with their solution. Sure. So the biggest challenge is discovery and evaluation of alternative data and having platforms where you can help make those decisions. And I've seen this growth, and you've, you've seen it, Tony, of firms that help evaluate alternative data. Yeah. It's complicated. And again, investments firms' business is to generate return, yeah. to, you know, to minimize risk. And it's not to be in the business of trying to understand every single uh, data set out there. That's the big challenge I've seen. And one that you know we're trying to address, and others are trying to address. And so, when you talk about this, actually, it, it kind of. So I remember when I was younger, you know, this idea around you know WalMarts and big supermarkets where you could go in, knew, knew I could go in there, and whatever I need to get, I yep. could get. Whether it's from food to to hunting supplies or whatever the hell it was that I needed, <laughs> I could go in there and I could get. Do you see that? Because that is what's happening right now, whether yeah. it's you guys with FactSet, whether it's um, NASDAQ and Quandle by Nash, sure. uh, Bloomberg with what they've created, that is where a large part of the market is going. Do you think that's going to be for the next few years and then that you guys will have to adjust to a little bit more specialist role? Or do you, how do you kind of see that? Because right now I think that you're right, that everybody does want, I want to go and I want to experiment, I want to see what I need. Right. But do you think that sophistication will come from these companies, thus they're going to be like, I don't necessarily need a Walmart. I need something that's a little bit more specific, I guess. I think you need the marketplace. Yeah. I do believe that. You need them all. You need that that ability. And let me be you know, clear. What I see the opportunity is with all this alternative data, back to where we started, you need pricing. You yeah. need fundamentals. You need estimates. You need the core. So the key for investment is ultimately with all this alternative data, you still want to do a model. You need history and you need to do a one-day price you know, calculation. Sure. What's my return? What are the earnings estimates of these companies? 
How does this security link to another security? You still need the fundamental core reference data linked into the alternative data. So where I've seen firms you know, go a little bit astray in this is thinking, we'll just build platforms with alternative data only. That's missing the fact that we're still dealing with institutional investors. At least this is our model. You know, I, I should probably say that up front. You know, the market I'm talking about is institutional investors. These are expensive solutions. These are solutions that, again, have to have that core information, which can be expensive. So that's where I see the, the value right now, where I think that's the marketplace that will win. The one that has the breadth of prospect, you know, can give you the ability to evaluate all sorts of data, yeah. but links it together so that you as a user can, out of the box, get use. You don't have to worry about the corporate actions and the linking is taken care of you. The formats are consistent. And then basically providing access to those open tools you talked about. But in, in conjunction with core fundamentals, estimates, ownership, supply chain, those data sets are still imperative to, you know, to use in this analysis. And that's, yeah. that's the win in it. But it is, it's definitely where the market's going. And you know, certainly, I think we've done a great job and have a great uh, theory around you know, the thesis we're using to get into this market has been build the marketplace, show as much information, but don't worry about, you don't forget about the basics. Okay. It's the hardcore, the stuff that's hard is that linking, those corporate actions, that symbology. Yeah. And a lot of the markets or the products and the solutions I've seen out there have been very focused or, you know, think, think, taking that out of account saying, we'll leave that to the client. The clients don't want to do that stuff. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this then. So I, over this two year journey, yeah, obviously it's a little long, but you know, just really putting in place. I'm 23, I tell yeah. <laughs> Tell me where where were the mis miscalculations made, right? Sure. Where in the beginning of this process do you think, all right, this is definitely where the market's heading, and you know, as you went down, it's like, nope, we had to readjust yep. the strategy. Yeah, I admit it. One thing about, and we'll talk about my background maybe later, is I'm an entrepreneur though, and mm -hmm. I believe in the concepts of failing fast and pivoting and being agile. And in this world, you have to be. So where I thought saw things when we released, um, we picked based upon our knowledge and what our clients were telling us, various data set types. We picked some satellite partners, we picked some sentiment partners, we picked some foot traffic partners, we picked some ESG partners. Um, my surprise, and I'll say it was, I thought, you know, satellites were big. We talked before Tony, we liked the show Billions, and there's, yeah. a, there's an episode of you probably remember where they had the Walmart example, of the, I think it was maybe nuclear reactors, yeah. there was some episode. Um, for data science, when you have a parking lot example with satellites, it's 50 firms. There's maybe 50 retail firms are using. It's not a data science app. There's no time series history. Yeah. That wasn't the win. The wins were these other ones. So what I learned was it is important to get, let the client see as much as they can. So get more data up faster, integrate it, and then move to the cloud faster. So we, again, our business model in CTS has been data feeds and data feeds out. And again, that's a heavy lift for some of our clients to actually have to do that integration before they can even test. So the next big pivot that we made was get to the cloud fast and get the hosted environment together as fast as possible with as many data sets linked as possible, as quickly as possible, to give firms the ability to test, yeah. to evaluate. And what's happened is this ecosystem's been developed, which has just been phenomenal, which I did not anticipate, which is partners are leading to more partners. We become basically a site you know, where new partners are pinging us and saying, we'd like to join the open facts and marketplace. And then what's even more amazing is Partners become clients because they're saying, hey, this is other data we can use in our models. Yeah. Clients become partners because they're basically saying, wait a minute, we can actually use some of this information. So that's been the, the amazing part to me has been that ecosystem. Yeah. The key has been re remaining focused 
on our market of institutions and keeping it very high value because the the risk is you start thinking of yourselves as Amazon and you yeah. start saying I'm going retail and this is going to be a credit card and people are going to do that. That's not where we're going. Yeah. We're keeping it high end and institutional. I'm not saying it's not a market for the others, yeah. but certainly for us, that's cool. where we see it. Well, I got to imagine because one of the most exciting and terrifying things that we're going to we talk about data explosion and more and more data is out there, more and more personal information is out there. We were talking about facial recognition, yep. stuff like that before. Yeah. Which doesn't scare me, but it scared you. Yeah, it so scares me to yeah, hire yeah, help. Okay. Uh, but, <laughs> um, but I think that one of the things looking over the next five to ten year time horizon is this idea around the Internet of Things, 5G technology. The yep. amount of data that is going to be created. Yep. How do you – is there a way to – to try and game plan for this into the future? Like yeah. how do these board meetings that you're having around it, I gotta imagine, is it still just very hypothetical or is it becoming more and more of a reality? Like we need to start to get into this now and start thinking about it now. You need to get into it now. And here's, so here's what we have to focus is more and more self-service. So when firms want to put data up, again, initially back to our journey, you know, we were doing a lot of heavy, heavy lifting for the partners, which is why we had to almost be selective. Yeah. We've created tools and we focused on more self-service so that partners can put their own data up in there and basically do almost everything to the point where we confirm, yes, you're a partner or not. They can do the heavy lifting. That's really, really important to do. Um, and I think that's probably the number one priority because it's going to get faster. Yeah. Um, and keeping in mind that, and this is where the world has changed as an organization, it's much more of a platform business than a pipeline business. We can't be best at everything. And one of the choices we made two years ago, you know, I made running this business was that we can't create every ESG partner. We can't create, not partner, data set. We can't yeah. create foot traffic. We don't own credit card data. You know, MasterCard, which is a partner on Open Facts, said we're not going to get the credit card business. So the idea is not only small firms are getting into this, but big firms with this, their exhaust information, like MasterCard, are building new businesses around data, data for institutions in other areas. Um, you know, the Walmarts of the world and other firms like that are probably, you know, are, are going to start be, you know, doing things like that. That's really where we see the opportunity um, is not only small fintech companies, but also large organizations. Our goal is to make the self-service as possible so the tools come in, make it as frictionless as possible so that more and more comes in. We can't possibly keep up with all the data sets out there. That's the maturity that I've personally developed and as an yeah. organization we've developed is, um, you know, back in the old days, it was, you know, we had – our estimates. Someone else had their estimates. Now you have to be the platform where you have to work with your competitors. Yeah. I mean, we have competitors who are on the open facts and marketplace. Yeah. Um, you know, when I say competitor, sometimes they're competitors, sometimes they're a partner. But you have to be willing to do that. You, if you worry constantly about cannibalization, yeah, you're going to be in trouble. It's not black and white. It's, it's not. Just and race. even even solutions, and we can talk more about that. We're not just doing data, and now we're putting up applications, analysis, and things like that. Some of them could theoretically compete with other facts and solutions. Yeah. We have to have the discipline and the confidence that some clients may want to do that. And it's, it's a different world out there and you have to think differently. I had to ask you this then, because what you're talking about is this, even with an internal organization competing with each other, but this idea of exhaust data and stuff like that. Yep. Banks, asset managers, they have a lot of interesting proprietary data. They do. That they can potentially package sell is that going to be, from your view, because I got to imagine the regulators would have to get involved in this yep. at some point. Where are we at in that stage? Sure. Is, is that something that is feasible right now, or is it something that we're still a little ways off from that really becoming a reality? It's 
the personalization and that type of information is where you're going to hit the, the line. And I think that's where, you know, in the investment community, even you're not getting down to that level, there's going to be regulation just around data. You know, that's sort of beyond, I think, the institutional market. That's where you're getting into more consumer products. But the banks are another example. And, you know, maybe where you're going with that, this too, Tony, is the idea that you have almost private data that you want to limit. You can't. You don't want every firm to buy it. You have to have controls, mm-hmm. entitlement processes to do that. Firms maybe want, to, maybe want to white label this marketplace for their own purposes, for their own client base. And you know, again, part of the, the journey that I've seen is these are things I hadn't anticipated up front, but we're having a lot of those conversations as well saying, we love the marketplace, but we want to have almost a private marketplace for our clients, an elite one. Maybe this yeah. is, you know, you look at yourselves as this kind of mall. Yeah. And maybe for the you know this this real high end mall exactly. that a firm is using, I don't know why I'm you using mall analogies. To park your car. Twenty that park the car, <laughs> you know, you get the valet and all that stuff. You know, not my style, but yeah. you know, there's some people who want that. It, um, but that that's really where we we see going. But the idea of the regula- regulation, yeah, the data we have now is really not down to the personalization level. I think if you start getting into that, and it probably will, there's going to be issues that the regulators are going to going to look at. I will still say it's early in this journey from the institutional side. And that's, you know, back to where we started, you know, this question about surprises to me, that's probably been the biggest surprise. And that gives us time, uh, but it doesn't take away the, I'll call it the anxiety that you got to always move faster. Yeah. It's going to be one of those things. I I find it fascinating from you guys' perspective from, you know, just any individual as they're trying to plan out their roadmap. Regulators are starting to get more and more as consumers and stuff like that become more and more at least aware, you know, it's like I said, this, you're willing to sign off on certain information. I think that we're going to be run up to a head within the next five years of just a real interesting regulatory fight. How it plays out, no one knows. And thus, how do you really plan ahead? But so with the entrepreneur and me thinking about that, that just creates more opportunity. Yeah. There's all sorts of new regulatory data that's going to come out because of that. I mean, again, there's so much Back to your data comment at the start, it just keeps growing. So now we're going to have all these new regulatory data sets around these issues that firms are going to have to look for from a risk management you know, perspective as well as potential alpha generation perspective. Okay. And there two, I want to get into your career because actually you have a very interesting background here. Before that, I, I would like to quickly hit on um, ESG. Okay. When we talk about alternative data, it's such a hot topic. It's there's so much investment, especially coming from the buy side, into ESG data sets. I, I actually wrote down something. My buddy Louis Woodall, who works on risk, he pointed this out. But, um, you know, ESMA published a survey showing the greatest concerns around ESG investment in Europe. And one of the great concerns is that right now there's still a lack of clear link between ESG matters and the current and future performance of a company. And... There are a lot of studies that do exist that show some of these linkages, but those are studies investment firms are trying to be able to prove it themselves, right? Yes. And so people know that there's gold in that hills, but how much effort are they willing to actually go and try and figure out what works for them and their strategy? Because ESG is so wide, so yep. varied, as we were saying before. What are the challenges that you're hearing the most when it comes to the ESG space? Great question. Again, the thank you. The, I fully totally appreciate. It. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny because I feel like you know, talk about leading the witness. <laughs> so ESG, you know, I think we've taught has been. When I think about alternative data. There are two data sets that probably have gotten the most traction: ESG and sentiment information. Mm-hmm. 
So ESG is, you know, environmental, social, governance information. There's three types. And each of those have incredible number of subtypes, you know, whether it's pollution or diversity or prison systems or nuclear power. It just goes on. So there's segmentation in that space. And there's also the regulatory issue that firms sometimes have to, for regulatory issues, show, you know, all the investments they're making in firms have yeah. enough diversity and things like that. So, And the SEC, I think, recently, or a couple of commissioners, if I'm remembering right, just recently said that the SEC itself is not requiring enough on that. And that might be something they're looking for in the it future. Is, which Sorry is, to cut No, you. which is why there's this growth of ESG yeah. partners. So we, again, back to our inbound request to join the platform. Um, you know, I work with, you know, the, the woman who's in charge of our partner program with Open Facts. It is overwhelmed with constant inquiries from ESG firms who want to get on here. Right now, it's mostly scores. So what's happening is a lot of these ESG providers in specific areas are using AI and machine learning, coming up with ways, showing back testing, And we have partners that do it at the show. They've come up with a firm that hires certain types of people and has diversity. We can prove there's extra returns. So there is a return side mm-hmm. that they're doing the back tests on. There's also the regulatory and risk side saying, hey, if you know, you there are some firms who said they could have predicted from ESG some issues that would happen with Volkswagen, for example. Yeah. Uh, so that's there's really two sides: there's a risk avoidance, and there's also the generation of gains. Again, I'm not making that decision what you know about which ones to pick. What I'm saying is, there's a lot to pick from. Yeah. And again, it's early, so but ESG score from a portfolio management and research side, they're going to need those scores. They're going to have to show to their clients, look, I looked at the pollution ranking of these companies. I looked at the nuclear power risks of these companies. I looked at the, again, the diversity of the of these companies. That's where it's going. So a lot of it is scores now. And then it's going to be in a matter of which of the partners give you the best visibility. Yeah. And that's going to be the judgment made. But it, it is, again, beyond early, it's just growing. Yeah. They're not all going to win. Yeah. And we have some partners who are ESG. Again, I'm being careful. I don't want to just show favorites, so I won't do that on this uh, on, on this podcast. But some. Are you don't tell me who's the best? Who's the worst? <laughs> <laughs> so after this podcast, we're doing a comedy one, right? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I think we can. I yeah. think we can. We got a little Bronx, a little Queens here. You exactly, know, we got the whole exactly. thing going on. Okay. <laughs> As I told you, I was bilingual. Yeah. I guess I still talk my Queens if I want to. Um, but that's really what we're we're seeing is and and some have really resonated. They've proven it. And so back to a question I often get, I work for FactSet CEO, and he'll say, which of the partners are selling, which aren't, why are not selling? The winners right now are ESG, and very specific partners are selling really well, and some aren't selling at all. And again, the beauty of that is it wasn't my decision, it's the client's decision. What are they buying? So part of, again, our job as being a marketplace is, as quickly as possible, get the data into the environment, let clients test it. But if they have very specific questions about the ESG, the ESG partner of ours is the expert. We're not. We can't be expert in everything. Yeah. But ESG is here to stay. Um, if I, again, if I were going to bet on it, it's going to keep going. There will be a shakeout, though. There's a lot of firms in there now. Let me cut you off, then. Sure. Let me ask you this. You're a consultant now. You're not working at Facts. Okay. Right? You're going into an ESG data provider. Where do the ones that are on the lower end, where do they go wrong with their data sets? Where where would you, if you had some advice to give sure. to these ESG data providers that are trying to enter the market, where do they often go wrong and the the, the buy side, the institutional side, are not finding any value in what they're offering? Um, they need to prove it first. So it's really their back tests, their story. Mm-hmm. So the biggest challenge for ESG providers is how do I get the mind share of a client? 
if I want to go to a big investment firm, I have to get not only to the portfolio manager analyst, I got to get through market data. Yeah. The small firms, that's really hard. So part of why they're partnering with us and some other large firms is we have those connections. So the biggest challenge is how do I get in the door? One of the mistakes many make is they get excited because they've sold five hedge funds, uh, yeah. e- their ESG data. That's not a business. Yeah. And they'll make some sales, they'll raise some money on it, they're burning cash quickly, and then they realize, I can't sell the big asset manager. So I say, my advice, stay small, get those hedge funds to buy it, but don't get overly excited about that. Yeah. When you can get into the bigger firms and prove the value of you, you have to prove the value. Once you prove it and you have a track record showing alpha, the rest is it's not easy. Then you get the salespeople and all, but, but don't get overly excited that you made five sales. Because yeah. I can tell you who you're gonna sell to, <laughs> Uh, they're going to buy everything, and then in two or three months, if it doesn't provide what they expect, they're, they're going to not use you anymore. Fail fast. <laughs> it's all about failing fast, right? Yeah. So that's my advice. And it's funny you ask that because, um, and we'll talk about my background a little bit, um, I get a lot of inquiries from firms. They want to raise money. They want to you know, do all sorts of things. I'm on the board of some small companies in this space. And so back to how I select the companies I'm going to board of, that's my criteria. Well, let's get into that a little bit. Sure. So you are somebody that started a company, mm-hmm. Insight, I N S Y T E. Wow, you're good. You did your research. I had it written here, but oh, I memorized man. it right before I looked at it. So, <laughs> or you're a bad speller. Okay, that's <laughs> right. terrible. Um, a little bit about your background, because that was one interesting thing. Like looking through your career here is mm-hmm. facts that bought you guys back in 2000. Yes. You stayed at that company, which is a little bit different than what we see with acquiring companies. A lot of times, mm-hmm. you're a co-founder, you start something, or entrepreneur, right? Create something, big company comes in, buys you, you have a valuable data set, and then you say, "All right, I have now a new idea. I'm going to go off." Or, yep, you stayed on. Talk a little bit about that process, if you would, sure, uh, for people that might either be thinking about starting their own business or have started their own business and they're thinking about that next acquisition. Well, this is going to go on about three hours now because now you're letting me, you're letting me talk about myself. Um, so it's been an interesting ride. And, you know, one thing I like to do is I'll say I'm, you know, a little older than the typical facts that person is when I mentor younger people and they say, where's my career going to be in five years? I have no clue. Yeah. Um, you kind of do things. So started a company very young and seriously, it was early. And when people say that was brilliant, I go, no, it's crazy. Uh, to do that, I did. I had two partners. Well, two thousand. Well, when did you? When did Insight start? Sorry, mid eighties. Oh, mid eighties. Yeah. So I've been at this a long time. Wow. So mid eighties, and then about wow. You, I, when I saw two thousand, I was like, all right, he's a dot com guy. You um, were not that. I'm not a dot com guy. Ready? No. Okay. We built so Insight was. A very, I apologize for not knowing more about. No, that. No, it's okay. So, so now I'm really going to go back. So Insight was very successful. We built an object-oriented database technology that we sold. It was actually a very general technology, but we realized, wow, the investment community can buy this. It was for time series analysis, historical analysis, let you integrate data from third parties as well as in-house solutions. Sounds very familiar. And we built a really nice business around it. We sold to very large uh, investment firms. In a sense, we were able to customize it. So we built a nice cash flow business around that. But to scale, it was tough because each client was somewhat custom. And in, uh, in 2000, Faxit offered to buy us for a few reasons. One was the technology, but also my focus was always quant. Mm-hmm. And Faxit's in, in it, even though we, you know, we do workstations and things, a lot of Faxit users have historically been quantitative. So when I got to Faxit, I expected to spend three years here and basically was able to start up the quant business. And our quant business wasn't really custom. It was much more in what Faxit's always done brilliantly 
is scale the business around how do you hit 90% of the market? You don't try to go for the outlier, super duper user. Yeah. You go for, and incredibly successful. We built workstation-based GUI quant products, built the business. It also still had a data feed component. It had basically customized what we call cornerstone feeds for clients who want to do the production in-house. That business started to scale. And it was in, it was not sustainable because it was custom and it, it wasn't working. So as FactSet started to again back to my own time, every time I I had thought about moving on and starting something, I was really lucky. FactSet yeah. gave me an opportunity to say let's try something new. And the next thing was we were starting to collect our own data. FactSet has historically been an integrator of third party content. We realized that was risky in some sense, and we started to create our own or purchase our own fundamentals, estimates, ownership, supply chain, and realized we can monetize that globally. So that's when CTS started and basically had the opportunity to do something I hadn't done is build a global business around data feeds, APIs, monetizing our content. Amazing ride. Uh, and that's, you know, was my chance to build. My group has engineering, it has sales, it has implementation, we have strategy, we have product development. It's a business, really just a extension of what I started at Faxit. It's just been an amazing extension. And then two years ago, you know, we had the question, how do we get more and more content into the environment? And that's where the open facts at marketplace idea came up. So I've been able to be creative. I'll admit there's, we talked before, grass is greener. Everybody wants to do a startup. I've been there. It's fun after the fact, <laughs> um, especially when you sell it and yeah. you do, you know, you do pretty well, but it's a different grind. Yeah. And working for a firm like Faxit, which has let me, uh, you know, internally I'm known and I can, you know, joke about it. I'm sort of the, the pioneer. I get to try new things. It's hard. Sometimes you're challenging the status quo. You're, you are risking cannibalization in some people's minds. To Faxit's credit, they've always let me do that. And I've been able to build an amazing team and a very loyal team. And we're having a blast. Let me ask you this then. Sure. So you started a company in the 80s, sold 2000. Yep. After the sale went through and you are now inside FactSet, what were the greatest moments of doubt? What were the kind of the, did I make the right decision or maybe mistakes that you maybe made that you had to adjust for to continue career? Um, so it was culture shock for me. Now, you got to remember when we sold the FactSet, FactSet was 300 people. Yeah. It was public. To me, it was huge, but it's 300 people. Now yeah. it's 9,000. Yeah. So it was a different world. Um, I think the surprise to me was, well, let me give you the benefits. We did everything. Part of being at your own place is, I felt with our product, which was called Vision, nobody can demo it but me. Yeah. And when it came to installing computers, I kind of would do that for people. And we did something, you did everything. And what Facts had taught me was scale. The idea that you reach a point with something, you can't do it all yourself. Mm-hmm. And I say the aha moment for me was the first time one of my sales guys, you know, was a FactSet person, said, hey, Newman, that's what he called me. Yep. I'm demoing. Newman. Cut it out. Yeah. <laughs> Just enough. And he demoed. I go, wow, he's better than me. Yeah. And then when, the, when we really focus more and more on the quant business and you, you out to know who I'm talking about, there was no way I can compete with these you know, people we had, these young, very ambitious, aggressive people at FactSet. And I learned about scale. So what FactSet really taught me was to keep that entrepreneurial drive but to leverage the scale. And those are the things I learned that you can't do it all. And that's mm-hmm. the toughest thing for an entrepreneur. And we bought a lot of companies since. So we were Faxit's first acquisition. It was a learning experience for me, but also for Faxit, which probably is why it worked, because there wasn't this M&A team that came in and said, you're doing this, you're going to be out in six months. It was yeah. like, literally, I was brought in because 
they kind of wanted me, which yeah. was a really nice feeling, whereas a lot of acquisitions are designed to get rid of the founder very quickly. So that, that was a big advantage, but it really has been that, that camaraderie learning. And what's weird for me when I'm, you know, when I'm, in, I'm from Boston, but I was in a New York office today. Yeah. I'm perceived as like the FactSet guy now. Yeah. And when I got to FactSet, I was definitely the, the new kid. It's, it's been, you know, I've been fortunate. It, you know, it's not always perfect. Obviously, I'm going to say that. But, you know, when the, the choices I had, whenever it came to that choice, I was able to do something new and exciting. Okay. Now the most important question of the day. Sure. Queens or Boston? Which one's better? Oh, my God. This is great. So um, <laughs> this is awesome. So growing up in Queens, yeah. you know, we talked about that. and uh, Jackson Heights. Jackson Heights. Yep. This is great. This, this is my real comfortable area, yeah. by the way. The, the, the heck with big <laughs> the other data. Stuff, the other stuff. Let's, let's yeah. talk about. So um, grew up, you know. 20 blocks, 20, 30 blocks from Shea Stadium. Mm-hmm. I liked, I was telling you before, when I was eight, you know, we would take the subway. Are you a Mets fan? I grew up a Mets fan, but I'm old enough to, I, want, I don't want to go there talk about okay. my, the, okay. great, the greatest right. time, but I, but I could. Let's just say, you know what I'm talking about. The 69 Mets. Yeah. Still pretty amazing, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, I was born 10 years later, but, you know, that's we'll, okay. We'll, that's, we'll that's, we'll talk, we'll pass that. <laughs> so, but moving to Boston, I've been in Boston 30, 35 years now. And converting from the Mets to the Sox was easy, especially when the Sox weren't winning mm-hmm. uh, because it was the team that just c- couldn't do it. So that was pretty easy. And when you have kids growing up in Boston, which I do, yeah. you're a Boston fan. Yeah. So that was pretty pretty easy My to convert. My sister, born in the Bronx, she moved up to Boston That's with her right. husband, had kids there. Now she's a Boston fan. It's, it's you, it, it is culturally so much part of the DNA in Boston, whereas yeah. in New York, although we have the Yankee-Met rivalry, it wasn't this obsession. There is – well, there's a separation at least that yes. exists there. That yes. You can be a Mets or yes. a Yankees fan, yes. Giants or a Jets. Right, right. Yeah. In Boston, you are a Sox fan and you're going to school wearing your Sox hat. It's yeah. just – and, you know, I will say that my whole family has, you know, converted, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to the dismay of some relatives down here. And uh, I actually drove to uh, – Long Island recently, and I it was the, the Sox were playing the Yankees, and they it was one of those games where it was like sixteen to two to Sox won in Yankee Stadium, which happened very rarely this year. Yeah, I was scared with my Massachusetts plates. <laughs> I literally was, but anyway. Um, so, but I, as, as we said before, be. yes, I I am bilingual. I can speak the Queen's English if yep. I need to, but we should not do this on a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> very good, very good. Best restaurant bar that people don't know about in Boston? What, what, if you had to give your Queens folk, they're going up to Boston. Do you have okay. a place? So let me just do my first, my, this might offend my Boston crowd, but the New York wine. Okay. The New York wine, the wine in Boston. When you come to Boston, oh, the New, New York. York wine, not the wine to drink, I, the I wine, I, yeah. W-H-I-N-E yeah. is, it's true. The bagels aren't nearly as good and yeah. the pizza, it's ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, so I would go the other way and say to Boston people, come to Queens. Yeah. Eat the pizza. It's amazing. I was out at my parents who, yeah. you know, are, you know, uh, senior citizens. Yep. And I had some pizza. It's just, it's phenomenal. <laughs> so that's probably more of the challenge I'd say to Boston. What's with the pizza? I, I'm with you there. I'm okay, with you there. good, good. All right. Well, listen, I'm with you here on New York. Let's go and uh, check out a good New York bar. But uh, <laughs> okay. Rich, uh, thanks so much uh, for coming on today. It's this, been a pleasure. This is great, Tony. I've, I've really had a lot of fun. And again, the next podcast, we're just going to do Queensboro, Queen of Queens, Bronx. I like it. Great. Thank you. Cheers. Bye-bye.